the both clinical studies and of course I also speak you know from my own clinical experience as a, as a doctor that prescribes this that you can dramatically improve many of these risk factors within 21 days within a few weeks not gimmick it's just the fact that you know dietary changes have a rapid effect on health
Dr. Asim, welcome to the Neuro Experience Podcast. There is a plethora of evidence out there circulating the world, and it's coming a lot from you and the work that you're doing and putting out there to suggest the correlation between COVID-19 and the obesity epidemic. Now, you speak extensively on the topic of metabolic disease, metabolic dysfunction. You've written an entire book on it, The 21-Day Immunity Plan. Can we talk by first understanding what is the relationship between COVID-19 and metabolic dysfunction? Absolutely. I think the first thing to say, Louisa, is um, poor metabolic health equals poor immune health. And in fact, this is a quote directly taken from an eminent U.S. physician. He's an infectious diseases expert, but also has a very unique uh, background because he also specializes in obesity medicine too. And his name is Ravi Kamapali. And, um, you know, he highlighted this in, in articles that he's written before. But coming back to, you know, my own analysis and what we have, we're aware of with the up-to-date data and research certainly related to COVID-19 is there's a very clear correlation, uh, which, you know, implies causation. It's not, you, you can't be diff- definite about it, but certainly when you go into the basic science, and we'll talk about that, it's quite clear that the conditions related to poor metabolic health, specifically type 2 diabetes, um, excess body fat and, and obesity, high blood pressure, heart disease, these are all the most significant conditions associated with poor outcomes from COVID-19. Yeah, it's super interesting to understand what the relationship is between COVID-19 and not just the obesity epidemic. Like if we look at all of the patients who have died from COVID-19 and look at their previous history and if their previous history did suggest that they are obese with type 2 diabetes, it's really fascinating to understand that this has an effect on the rate at which you may or may not survive or even um, catch COVID-19. Yeah, I think, Louise, I think it's important to clarify that that we don't have any evidence um, that we can prevent uh, catching the virus from having uh, better metabolic health. Uh, Although we do know that people with obesity, for example, will carry the virus for longer. That's, that's already established even from flu data, which is interesting. So they're more likely to spread it if you're carrying it for longer. Um, but in terms of um, catching it, there isn't any really good evidence about metabolic health there. But what's crucial is how your body deals with the virus. And if you have poor metabolic health, you're more likely to um, suffer complications such as being hospitalized and, and obviously, you know, tragically for a a minority, you know, increased risk of death. And just to put that in some very basic um, um, statistical terms for people listening, and this is actually a study just published, came out of the United States just a couple of days ago. And and what they found is that patients who had the metabolic syndrome, and we can define that shortly, were three and a half times more likely to die and five times more likely to be hospitalized if they caught COVID-19. Now that you know, as, as we, uh, from the data we've got so far is actually, you know, out with age, of course, age is a, is the biggest risk factor, but, um, it is, it does appear to be the biggest risk. So w- the data on obesity shows just from looking at BMI alone over 30, it doubles the risk of death. 
Uh, type 2 diabetes data in the UK shows that you're twice as likely to die from COVID-19 if you have type 2. If you have type 1, it's over three and a half times. So metabolic syndrome clearly seems to be the biggest um, you know, risk factor, cluster of risk factors, if you like, for increased risk of death from COVID. And I will also mention that even before COVID-19, Louisa, we know, you know, this is something that's not talked about, but is acknowledged and is in the, in the medical literature. But if you have, you know, a condition associated with high blood glucose, specifically type 2 diabetes, you're much more likely to suffer chest infections, pneumonia, all sorts of other infections. So, you know, one of the things I write about in the book is that viruses and bacteria thrive off high blood glucose. Uh, one study from China showed that actually type 2 diabetics admitted to hospital. Um, there was a, quite a significant difference between the ones that had better glucose control and admission versus the ones that had poor glucose control. And that risk of death for that group was tenfold difference in death with people who had poor glucose control. So, you know, the, the evidence is, is, uh, is very strong. It implies causality. And what I advocate for not just about COVID, but generally, you know, we talk about the, the biggest drivers of, of um, chronic disease and misery in our populations at the moment, um, you know, is, is poor metabolic health. So uh, the, the ultimate message from the book is, one, people need to understand what it is um, and how they can measure it, and then what can you do about it? And the, both clinical studies, and of course, I also speak, you know, from my own clinical experience as a, as a doctor that prescribes this, that you can dramatically improve many of these risk factors within 21 days, within a few weeks, not gimmick. It's just the fact that, you know, dietary changes have a rapid effect on health. Um, and I think that's a really important message, you know, from the book as well, that, you know, this doesn't, this isn't a many months and years process. Of course, sustainability is another discussion, another part of the discussion, but you can start to see the impact on your health very quickly. Yeah, well, on that, I mean, your book starts with a strong and obvious comment about the pandemic. It starts off with, what was missing from the mainstream media discussion and public health messaging surrounding the virus was that the underlying root cause of these conditions is related to lifestyle. But I think the point that you were trying to make was not to moralize, but to provide solutions. And that's exactly what the book does. And I see that you immediately jump to a quote, a quote from one of the greatest endocrinologists, Professor Robert Lustig, where he said, prevention is not just better than a cure. Prevention is the cure. And I absolutely love that. And I'm so happy that you alluded to that early on in the book. Now, something that was great, you opened the book up by first talking about Boris Johnson. Now, you were around for that. Can you please tell us a bit more about what happened during that time? Well, it's interesting. So before even Boris got admitted, to, well, he got admitted to hospital, basically. And it was interesting to observe, and it's just an observation, but as clinicians, as you know, the first tool we have as doctors is our observation, you know? Um, you know, and it's important to mention this because some people might come in and say, how can you say this as a doctor and evidence, blah, blah, blah. You know, if it was observation just alone, it wasn't backed by evidence, and I can understand that point. But, you know, the first thing we do, the first thing we're taught in medical school, school Louisa, is look at clues of patients when they even walk into the consultation room, look at their appearance. That's where you start from, whether even if it's even in psychiatry, even looking at physical health, looking at the clothes people are wearing, you know, trying to decipher what kind of background or job they have. All these things are linked into what ultimately might determine their diagnosis and their health. So this is the very first 
principle of evidence-based medicine actually starts with observation. So I just wanted to clarify that because, you know, there was a little bit of backlash when, when I came out publicly and said this on Good Morning Britain, in fact, after writing an article in the Telegraph newspaper over here and something in European Scientist, where I had noticed that Boris obviously got admitted to hospital. Luckily, he, you know, he, he was quite sick, but didn't need uh, intensive care, although it was 50-50 at one stage. And he survived, thank God. But his other colleagues around him, the chief medical officer, um, the chief executive of the National Health Service, NHS England, Simon Stevens, you know, the Secretary for Health, Matt Hancock, all of those colleagues are clearly slim. They're not, they don't look overweight, you know, individuals. Of course, I don't know anything else about the rest of their health, but, you know, they, you know they're, 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 they're middle-aged and they're slim. Boris clearly was overweight. I know this um, from him being public about it before, that we know his BMI was about 35 when he got admitted to the hospital. And, you know, the data already up to that point had revealed that with other viruses, um, you know, uh, people were uh, with obesity were much more likely to get sick and get admitted to hospital. So that was the initial observation. And then I, I spoke about it publicly, and then it became a bit of a news story. And then, of course, Boris himself um, acknowledged it. I don't think anyone else had said anything at this point, which is very frustrating, because even at the beginning of the pandemic, or certainly when it hit the UK, I went on to Sky News and I said, listen, we know that there is a very strong link with metabolic health and adverse outcomes from COVID-19. This is a time for people to change their diet. This is a time where they can probably significantly reduce their risk of getting severe illness. And let's do this now. But there was no public health messaging at that point. So then another opportunity arose when, you know, I was interviewed about this, uh, about obesity again, when we had more data confirming that in the UK. And that's how that, that conversation started. And then my publisher came to me and said, can you write a book in six weeks and get it out and talk about all this? And I said, absolutely, fine, let's do it. Yeah, Dr. Sim, I've got to tell you, BMI is a controversial topic and I'd love your weigh-in and input on this because normally when we look at BMI, we're not looking at a person's body fat percentage. Now, somebody could have a high BMI, but they could be really skinny. And sometimes somebody who is really lean could be in the category range of obesity as per BMI metrics. So how do you decipher the correlation between what you're talking about and BMI when we're not taking into account body fat percentage? Absolutely, Louisa. So, you know, in diplomatic terms, I would say that, you know, BMI over over the years, uh, and certainly this is relatively consistent, that there is an increased risk as your BMI increases. But just to try and simplify it for people to understand what BMI is, it's basically just a measurement that involves dividing your weight in kilograms by your height in meters squared, and it gives you a number. And this number is, if it's over 30, you're obese. If, you, if it's 25 to 30, you are overweight. And if it's 18.5 to uh, 25, you're so-called normal weight. Now, the problem with this is that it misses out a huge cohort, a huge proportion of people who will be told they've got a normal weight or even you know, let me use this very unscientific, nonsensical term. This should stop being used in any media, healthy weight. It doesn't exist. It's absolute nonsense. Okay. It's unscientific nonsense, right? There's no such thing as a healthy weight. Only somebody with, you know, healthy metabolic health or healthy person. So, and just to give you perspective, it's not a small minority. Up to 40% of people with a normal BMI will have, um, you know, suboptimal metabolic health uh, and even develop metabolic syndrome. And that's associated with the highest risk of complications, uh, you know, from heart attack, stroke, and death over 10 years, irrespective of COVID, irrespective of infection, even before all of this. So this is why it's important to emphasize because many of these people 
will be falsely given the illusion of protection if they go to their doctor and they're told you've got healthy weight and their metabolic markers are not me- are not measured. So I agree with you entirely, Louisa. We should we should really get rid of, of BMI and talk about metabolic health. I think the only thing I would say is that in general, you know, if you have a BMI above 30, it's very, very likely that you've got you know, pretty poor metabolic health. Not always, um, but the data is something like one in 200 people over, you know, with a BMI of over 30 will have optimal metabolic health. Now, of course, you're going to get people like rugby players and all that kind of stuff that have got... So, sorry, just to finish, I think that the, 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 what BMI misses, it misses your, as you, as you said absolutely correctly, misses your body fat percentage, doesn't tell you your muscle mass, doesn't tell you your bone structure, doesn't account for ethnicity, all of these things. Um, and just to give you one personal example, um, you know, so people can try and understand this a little bit more, and this comes very close to home, Louisa. My own mother tragically died prematurely about 18 months ago at the age of 68 she was a doctor um, and she died um, from really an infection that that infected a spine something called discitis Um, and uh, you know she was so frail by the time that she died that her body wasn't able to deal with it and it was horrible you know circumstances a lot of pain four weeks of morphine you know and, and you know she didn't just die prematurely she died in a horrible way and it was it was very distressing for all her friends and family members to witness it um but uh, if, if if you trace back her history um she most of her problems started because of her weight she was obese um her bmi was over 30 but it was excess body fat a lot of it from driven by the kind of foods she was eating she was vegetarian but eating a lot of sugary and starchy foods she then developed high blood pressure as a result of high blood pressure she uh, suffered a, a small brain hemorrhage which she survived and you know was able to make a pretty good recovery from but actually her joints were being affected over the years because of the excess weight and she got arthritis that combined with rheumatoid. And then by the time she died, I mean, the last few years, she was pretty much housebound. She was so frail. Her muscle mass decreased. She wasn't eating properly as well. And her BMI, by the time that she died, uh, Louisa, was was actually well within so-called normal limits. So that wouldn't have been accounted for in her death. But actually, the root cause of all her problems was her poor diet. So this just gives you a sort of one example of how BMI can be very misleading. Thank you so much for sharing that with us in the audience. And I just want to say that 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 just shows true strength. If you can see that happen to your mother and have the passion and the love and the heart to want better for the world so they don't have to go through what your mother endured and and so families don't have to go through what you have been through is very admirable. So thank you for sharing that with us and your journey. Um, I would love to understand first and foremost what the cutoff range is when it comes to obesity. Is Is there a specific number that somebody is immediately diagnosed with? Okay, this is your BMI number and now you are classified as obese. Yeah, yeah. So it's based. So it's thirty. So obesity being the actual word obesity technically means your body mass index is over thirty. Okay, I'm going to introduce the audience now to your book, the 21 Day Immunity Plan. You state in this book, in the simplest terms, metabolic health is best understood as the state of balance the body maintains between storing fat and burning it for energy. Once this balance is disrupted, health is adversely affected. Now, you mentioned earlier, Dr. Sim, that we have biomarkers to measure metabolic health. Now, you've alluded in here that the five biomarkers are blood glucose levels, blood pressure, waist circumference, 
and cholesterol profile, which is determined by the body's level of triglycerides, which which is a harmful fat found in the blood, and high-density lipoprotein, a beneficial cholesterol-carrying molecule. What I would love to do is I'd love to take a helicopter view and deconstruct every single one of these biomarkers in a way that the audience will understand. I mean, I'm sure you can appreciate that not everybody really understands what triglycerides are and how they affect brain health, longevity, and metabolic health. And for myself, I have to tell you that even for me, someone who has studied medicine and science, it's not something that is easily understood. It took me many years of studying to understand how everything is related to each other. What are fats? How do we break down fats? What does it mean for our body? What does it mean for our brain? So I'd like us to go deep into each and every one of these biomarkers so the audience can really elicit an understanding of what you are trying to say. Yes, absolutely. So I think um, this is, again, the shift in the paradigm that I'm also trying to um, you know, convey through the book and the, and the science in the book. And we've known this for a very long time, Louisa, that uh, metabolic health and more specifically metabolic syndrome. So let's just look at that as a kind of um, uh, a spectrum, if you like. So on one end, you've got optimal metabolic health. On the other end, you've got poor metabolic health. And the best way to describe poor metabolic health at the worst, uh, worst end of the scale is metabolic syndrome. So you have three of those markers that you've discussed, and we'll go through them in detail, as being abnormal. And the reason I mentioned that as a cardiologist is that most people who are admitted with heart attacks now have a diagnosis of metabolic syndrome. Now, what's interesting from that metabolic syndrome markers, which we'll, we'll talk about, is neither body mass index is part of it and neither is LDL cholesterol. So these are the two things that are, are so feared and discussed, but actually they're not as important as people, you know, they're, they're much less important than people believe them to be. So, um, and this has been in the literature for a very long time. The reason that most people don't, aren't aware of it, most people don't talk about it certainly most doctors don't measure it one of the reasons it's really commercial influence because actually we do, we, we have what we do is in medicine you know we have we have drugs to treat individual risk factors but we don't really have any intervention that can target all of them together and the reality is the only intervention to date the most important intervention that can target all of them together at the root cause of many of these conditions blood pressure um, you know, heart disease risk, type 2 diabetes, is lifestyle changes. And at the, and the forefront of those lifestyle changes in that hierarchy of those risk factors is diet. So I just wanted to just get that across. But yes, so when we look at those markers, so the first thing to say is these are not expensive tests. They're very simple. Your, your primary care physician can carry them out. Um, it involves one, you know, set of bloods, and the other ones you can do at home. So three of them are, uh, you know, uh, can be measured just from a blood test. So this is your blood glucose. So you want your HbA1c, which is your average blood glucose level, to be less than 5.7%. Um, above 57 you become pre-diabetic. And then, you know, above 65 the cutoffs vary, but, you know, you're actually type 2. So, um, you know, above 5.7%, you're then pre-diabetic. Now, just on that, what is your take on continuous blood glucose monitors? Now, I'm about to partner with a company who manufactures, makes uh, continuous blood glucose monitors, and I've been really fascinated in this. And for all of the listeners who were listening to my last podcast um, with Dr. Casey Means, she 
alluded to the fact that we are all different. What might spike my levels of SIM, my blood glucose levels, it may be completely different to what spikes your blood glucose levels. And I actually share a funny story in the last episode about me having ingested a single grape and within, I think it was like seven minutes, my glucose just shot through the roof. So I'd love your take from a cardiology perspective on the beneficial effects and uses of CGMs. Yeah, no, I think continuous glucose monitor I certainly have a, a, a massive role in, in people, in individualizing people's understanding of how different foods affect the blood glucose. And, and just to take a step back, I think, you know, what we want to be ideally doing is eating foods that aren't going to make our blood glucose rise significantly, because that then links to insulin being increased and, and, and chronic levels of insulin being high over a long period of time predates um you know developing some of these conditions we're talking about and actually it's linked to all many conditions louise as you probably well know that you know there is even you know there has been debate and discussion to rename alzheimer's type 3 diabetes because you know 70 to 80 percent of people with type 2 diabetes ultimately will develop some form of dementia and that isn't discussed as well so so there's a huge link with the brain there which i'm sure you know you're going to probably educate me quite a lot on as well um so i think it does come down to so it comes you're absolutely right let's just let's talk about glucose 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 and in terms of the, the glucose monitoring i think the general rule of thumb in general for the population is high glycemic index carbohydrates and sugar you know these are the sorts of foods that are going to raise blood glucose and over time Overconsumption is certainly going to you know, increase your risk of developing type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, for example, and heart disease. So, so the glucose monitor, I think, is helpful for people to understand how they individually respond to foods like bread and pasta, you know, even a grape, as you say, um, fruit. Uh, but I think that in, in general, the general rule of thumb is that there are certain foods that are categorized that are, are going to be detrimental to your blood glucose and certain ones that aren't. But of course, there will be some individual variation. I think the only thing is we shouldn't just be also very reductive and just purely focus on that. I think it's very helpful because um, you can develop um, insulin resistance, which is the major issue, you know, high insulin over the body not responding to the hormone insulin. Uh, which is responsible for maintaining blood glucose levels within normal ranges, it can develop from eating foods that won't specifically necessarily raise your blood glucose. So if you had pure uh, fructose, for example, fructose uh, you know, doesn't raise your blood glucose uh, on its own. But if you consume in excess, what it does is it, it causes the liver to produce excess fat. And that causes what we call hepatic insulin resistance. So there's indirect ways of causing insulin resistance, which aren't necessarily just specifically related to having high glycemic index carbohydrates. Um, But yes, they are very important. It's a big issue. Okay. So what you're saying is no matter how we're measuring our blood glucose levels, whether it's via a pinprick test or whether it's via a CGM, doesn't matter how you're doing it. What we're trying to do is we're trying to understand what spikes our blood glucose levels. So then we can get insulin sorted so we can really get that under control. Because when we have our insulin under control, we then have a greater effect on our metabolism and our metabolic health. Absolutely. Okay, good. I'm glad we got that sorted. Okay, let's head on over to biomarker number two. Yes. So uh, we talked about blood glucose, um, uh, the other biomarkers. So there are two from a blood test looking at your cholesterol. Now, people 
uh, have for many years feared high cholesterol. High cholesterol is not the problem. It's a cholesterol profile, which is determined by, most importantly, by your blood triglycerides, which is, you know, in, in very simple terms is uh, a blood fat uh, and your HDL, uh, high-density lipoprotein cholesterol, which is known as a good cholesterol. So what you want is you want your triglycerides to be low and your HDL to be high. And as a very simple rule of thumb, there's a ratio, first of all, first and foremost, is your triglycerides to HDL ratio should be less than two. So, for example, um, you know, if your uh, triglycerides were one, you, know, you want your, uh, your HDL to be above... 0.5 but actually ideally even better is to get it less than one so mm. i generally try and aim for my patients to make sure your triglycerides is less than your hdl from those markers specifically uh we want your triglycerides in when it comes to metabolic syndrome to be less than 1.7 millimoles per liter mm. and your hdl so-called good cholesterol to be greater than one millimole per liter if those two are outside those ranges then you've then got one of those abnormal markers of, of metabolic health and yeah. what's interesting is, again, that the foods that tend to derive high triglycerides and low HDL, as in, in an adverse way, tend to be the starch and sugary foods. Now, on that, can you please tell me what the correlation is between LDL levels and cortisol? Because what I know for sure is if anybody wants to go and get a blood test and they want to track their LDL levels, the HDL levels, they shouldn't be going when they've had a stressful day or a stressful sorry, week. So LDL, LDL, low density lipoprotein, Louise says, is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, LDL. Oh, okay. I'm not aware of that. I'm not aware of that, but let's, we'll talk about it further, yeah. Well, what I know is that the more anger and hostility that stress produces in you, the higher and worse your LDL and triglyceride levels tend to be. Now, stress encourages the body to produce more energy in the form of metabolic fuels, which then cause the liver to produce and secrete more of the quote-unquote bad cholesterol levels, which are LDL. So what I'm trying to say is we can't just have a one-stop shop. We can't just go and have a definitive answer from one blood test. We need to, um, we need to go back several times in order to really say, well, this is our average level, our average LDL level, because somebody may go through a serious traumatic event, uh, like the loss of a loved one, or even as simple as a woman menstruating, going through some type of stress, emotional, um, mental stress, they go and get blood work done, and then they diagnose themselves with high LDL levels. So that's what I'm trying to say. I agree with you. And I think the other thing to mention is people fear LDL. It, it, it's, the, the fear has been grossly exaggerated. I don't look at LDL, to be perfectly honest with you. I look at the triglycerides and HDL, and I'll tell you why. Um, number one, um, there is no, unless you have a, a condition called familial hyperlipidemia, which is a genetic condition that affects one in 250 people where they have very, very high cholesterol levels, there is no correlation for the overall majority of the population between how high your LDL is on its own and development of heart disease. So that's bunkum. I've written and researched on this for the last several years and loads of publications out there. The second thing is there is no correlation with lowering LDL, certainly not with diet at all and improving your health outcome in any way. And even with drugs, we published a paper recently in BMJ Evidence-Based Medicine, which debunked this um, concept or this thought that the, the more you lower your LDL, the less likely you get heart disease and heart attacks and stuff like that. 
absolute nonsense. It's it's all selective, biased, industry-sponsored studies, and the scientists and academics that are supported by industry that, that push this, unfortunately. So there's a huge conflict of interest, huge intellectual bias there. It's complete nonsense. I would take anybody on anytime, any place, anywhere in the world, any scientist, and challenge them on this uh, with the evidence. So this is nonsense. So we don't focus on lowering LDL either. But interestingly, um, triglycerides and HDL, you know, there are two types of particles of LDL, type A and type B. Now, the type A are your large fluffy particles, if you like, that float around in the blood, and your type B are the small dense ones. The small dense ones are seem to be a problem if they're high, they're correlated with more heart disease, but they are directly, you know, related to your triglycerides and HDL levels. Um, a very simple way of understanding it, there's a, um, yeah, a great researcher in America called Benjamin uh, Bickman, who's written a book about why we get sick, and it's about insulin resistance. And he, it's a great analogy, which I read, and I'm going to use, um, you know, quoting him, is for people to understand, if you imagine a river, and you've got um, you know, a beach ball, and you throw the beach ball, the beach ball will float. Okay? Imagine the river is almost like the, the inner lining of your coronary artery. So it's floating along the edge. It's not going to cause a problem. It's not going to infiltrate you know, into the water and cause damage. So imagine that as your type A LDL particle. Type B is a golf ball. You took a golf ball and it's going to sink. It's going to infiltrate within the artery and it's going to cause, you know, inflammatory responses, et cetera. And that could cause, you know, buildup of plaque within the arteries. That's a very nice, um, you know, elegant analogy or a description of how people can understand this. So that's what they need to understand. But the bottom line is look at your triglycerides and HDL, forget about LDL cholesterol. Um, it's not, you know, it, it's not uh, correlated with heart disease unless it's very, very high. Now, I'm going to add something else really interesting on top of this, Louisa. I did a systematic review published in BMJ Open with several international scientists a few years ago. And we looked at, was there any correlation between LDL cholesterol and heart disease in people over 60? Because most heart attacks develop after the age of 60. We found not only did we find no correlation, but we found an inverse association with LDL and all-cause mortality. In other words, the higher LDL, statistically, the less likely you were to die. So LDL is protective. And the reason it's protective is it's involved in the immune system. It's part of the immune response. It's, it's, it's so, you know, elderly people, older people tend to be more risk of dying from infections like chest infections, pneumonias, et cetera. It appears LDL is protective. So this is another reason not to lower your LDL specifically target LDL. You should not target it. Now, it may come down if you sort out the rest of your triglycerides HDL, but what you're doing is you're reducing your LDL type B particles, which are the ones that are linked to heart disease. I really love that you're talking about the scale of the problem, because just like what you said in your book, and I quote, America spends 18% of its GDP on healthcare, the highest expenditure in the world, equating to an annual spend of approximately 3.5% trillion dollars, yet it ranks 34th in the world for overall health and wellness of its citizens. That scares me because what we're seeing is an influx of physicians and clinicians diagnosing their patients with XYZ and patients who don't really know too much about the fundamentals of metabolic disorder, metabolic dysfunction, metabolic disease, and they are trusting in their physicians and God willingly, the physicians out there are not just prescribing drugs just for the sake of it, but they're trusting them to get on board with a, you know, have a greater health plan for themselves and obviously increase their longevity. But instead of them under, understanding 
lifespan, understanding what COVID-19 is doing to them. Instead of that, they're, you know, where, you know, if they did understand that, they could quite willingly go on a 21-day immunity plan and fix up their lifestyle and health choices just by eating the right foods. Instead of doing that, what we're seeing is a lot of people just buying into the pill and the drug comp- the drug companies are winning. And it's more so that that instead of having that you know the the prevention is cure effect, they're more so relying on the band-aid method where just go and stuff your body up, stuff your life up, stuff your 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 insides up and then go and see a doctor. And they'll fix it via a drug. Yes, Louisa, absolutely correct. So I think you know, unfortunately, the we've had we have too much commercial influence over um, medical prescribing practices. And to summarise what you just said in terms of the way that America spends so much on healthcare yet has very poor outcomes, is a very simple line I will use: is that good health rarely comes out of the medicine bottle. And what I mean by, mean by that is that managing a lot of these chronic diseases, whether it's blood pressure, heart disease, type 2 diabetes, you know, the drugs that are used to manage these conditions have very marginal benefits at best. And in fact, most people, this is not, you know, this is completely irrefutable. This is just that when you break down the, you know, the, the data, the clinical trials into the you know, most basic parts, the overall majority of people do not benefit from these medications. Now, let me just give you one example. If we take statins, okay, these are the you know, most marketed, lucrative, probably the most prescribed drug in the history of medicine. You know, it's estimated maybe one billion people around the world are taking statin drugs to lower cholesterol. Um, you know, if, even if you break down that clinical trial data, which is selective and biased and sponsored by the industry to look at the best case scenario and how people will benefit, if you've had a heart attack where there is some benefit, the absolute benefit for that individual over a five-year period from taking a statin for death is one in 83. And for preventing a non-fatal heart attack, a recurrent heart attack is one in 39. Another way of looking at the stats, if you look at the average, you know, sometimes patients ask this question to me, how much longer will this help me live, doctor? Over that five-year period, because that's how long often these trials last, the median increase in life expectancy for people with heart disease who have had a heart attack, taking a statin drug, which is they're being told, by the way, is a wonder drug, or certainly the perception that they're received by many cardiologists and doctors. It's a wonder drug, and if they don't take it, they're going to die. Um, best case scenario, industry-sponsored trials, increase in life expectancy over a five-year period, just over four days. And these are in people that don't get the side effects. So, I mean, statins are another discussion, but I'm just making the point that actually what, what we need now, we need to change the mindset of how doctors understand the evidence. A lot of doctors don't even have a basic understanding of evidence-based medicine. And it's not pointing a finger. It's not because they're stupid or whatever. I mean, I was one of these people. We're just naive to it because we're not taught about it. We're not taught very well how to understand medical statistics, data. And then when you don't understand it, you also then don't translate it into the conversation with the patient. So the, there is a... The there is a, a, a pandemic of lack of informed consent going on throughout the, throughout the medical system when it comes to managing these chronic diseases. Now, am I saying medicine is rubbish? Absolutely not. I think we've done some amazing things in medicine, but most of that is in acute care, you know, um, operations, you know, for major surgery, uh, you know, for whether it's bypass or whether it's trauma, you know, antibiotics for infections, emergency care we do some amazing great stuff there that genuinely is life-saving but the biggest stress on the healthcare system at the moment is managing these chronic diseases and the drugs that we are prescribing even for type 2 diabetes blood glucose control type 2 diabetes 
all these drugs that are being prescribed, they will not increase lifespan. But patients aren't told this. Now, they may prevent some other minor complication, but this is all about having an informed discussion, especially, Louise, as you've already mentioned, we're not even getting to a discussion of prescribing lifestyle stuff, which actually gets to the root of these problems and improve many of these markers anyway, that then people don't even need the drugs. They can come off the drugs. So, you know, this is a complete mess. We're, we're in a mess and we can explain it if we get to the root of it all because we just have too much commercial influence on, on medicine. So doctors are making clinical decisions on biased and commercially corrupted information. And if you think about it from a very basic scientific point of view, if you do that, you're going to get bad outcomes for your patients. And that's what we've got. Oh my gosh, you have just raised so many important points. Now, first of all, with the amount of research being published in medical medical journals and presented at meetings, it should not be surprising when a new finding slips by by a physician. Okay, nor, nor should it be surprising then that some decisions about patient care might be made without benefit of the most recent evidence. You speak fondly about evidence-based medicine. And for all of the listeners out there, if you just go to YouTube and type in Dr. Asim Malhotra and put a, a dash and go to his talk at, I think it was, uh, it had something to do with CrossFit Asim, but you gave a really concise and in-depth view on what it takes to be an up-to-date physician where your knowledge is coming from evidence-based medical journals. Now, what do I mean by that? If you follow me on social media, guys, you'll see that I post a lot about my daily findings and everything that I read on BMJ. Now, I go on BMJ, I go on PubMed, I um, I go on Cochrane Database, and it's taken me a very long time to understand how to critically appraise a systematic review or even an RCT. These things here, which all fall under the lines of clinical epidemiology, is not something that is really practiced. And I'm I'm going to be really careful with my words because it's not everybody. There are physicians out there who do spend their time looking up the latest, um, the latest evidence in, in journals and they, they're, they are putting their time into that. But sometimes physicians are busy. Sometimes you don't get that much time to look into what the latest research is. And I think that's where we're lacking. But I also think, and you can tell me what your views are on this. I also think that a, there's a very big difference between a physician and a PhD, obviously. However, I think in a perfect world, a patient should be able to go into an office, a physician's office, and the physician should be able to uh, discuss or consult with their onboard PhD and be able to come to a conclusion altogether. Now, it is difficult to put a solid number on how many doctors are practicing outdated medicine. And I think a really good place to start would be with the numerous studies that have been found that many patients do not receive recommended care for various conditions. But you know, I, I don't think this is a black and white issue because physicians can be up to date in one area and lagging behind in another. So in your humble opinion, how do you think this will stop? How can we stop the, the health crisis and how can we, how can physicians make better informed decisions? 
So I think that what I would say first and foremost is the reason that we have these problems that still perpetuate themselves, are still present, still part of the status quo, is lack of awareness of the very discussion that we're having, Louisa, the very topic we're discussing is people are not aware of the system failures. They're not aware, for example, that you know the information that doctors are using, public aren't aware, is biased and corrupted. The doctors themselves have taken this as biblical truth. And up until a few years ago, you know, if it was published in the Lancet or the BMJ or the New Journal of Medicine, you're just saying, oh my God, this is absolute, you know, whatever's written in the conclusion, this is pure, you know, um, uh, pure science um, and, and this is uh, the gospel truth. And actually, you know, we find now, and this is, you know, John Ioannidis, I think, if you look at the gold standard, really, just to give people some perspective, it's not to say all research is rubbish. I mean, research does inform us in many different ways, but it's about how we take that research and how we then, you know, how is it useful for our patients and and how reliable is it? John Ioannidis is a professor of medicine and statistics at Stanford, and he wrote a paper um, in 2001 in plus one and um you know it's very one of the most highly cited downloaded papers but it you know he using statistics basically looking at various research he ultimately concludes that most published research findings are false okay then i'll uh i'll 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 head on and cancel the lancet subscription that i just recently purchased (laughs) but but i think if we start from there we then realize that you know we have to have a more healthy skepticism about research we're reading and we've also got to think as clinicians, is that... Well, how does that then minimise bias? Don't we learn in clinical epidemiology how to minimise bias and via the evidence-based pyramid? How are we then meant to make informed decisions based on what you said? We have to go further because, because the, the evidence-based medicine pyramid only looks at things like randomised control trials, multiple randomised controls trials, for example, being at the top, you know, and, you know, case studies being at the bottom or whatever. I think that the problem with that pyramid is it still implies that those, so there is certainly a hierarchy there, but it doesn't go into the roots of even those randomized control trials. If they're corrupted, then ultimately, you know, we are still making, you know, systematic reviews of RCTs themselves could be very biased to start with. So that doesn't, you know, um, uh, it doesn't mitigate from the potential of this of this research being potentially harmful. But I think the, the point I'm making is that we just need to start with a bit of skepticism, of course. And then it's about how, you know, how does that information then um, translate into discussions with patients? And of course, we've got our clinical experience as well. We shouldn't, we shouldn't um, you know, uh, uh, mitigate, undermine uh our own experience as doctors, because we know with our patients, a lot of the time, we know patients are getting better. We, we see, and, and you know, th- from that experience, and of course, from the lifestyle aspects, um, I see that all the time that people certainly improve significantly when they change their lifestyle and come off their pill. So I think um, what we need to do is, first of all, acknowledge that there are limitations. I think that's a very basic level with the, with the research we're reading. We shouldn't rely on one study to then change our um, you know, our practice. We should hopefully get multiple studies from different sources and ideally, you know, get them free from industry. I think one of the first things people need to look at when any, whenever any study is published, who sponsored it? Because as soon as you've got a sponsorship and, and, and our people who are sponsoring are going to profit from the results and you automatically, you know, should start with a you know, level of skepticism. Um, so I think that's where we need to start from. But to change the system, to answer your question, we need to, we need to start with that basic awareness that there are problems in the system, there are problems with the regulation, there are problems with guideline boards that are infiltrated by academics who are biased because they get their research funding from drug companies and therefore, you know, are going to have a very skewed and biased view for positive results from a particular trial sponsored by that drug company. 
I think once we start there, then we can then start making changes in the system to try and remove the bias or reduce it as much as possible. Um, and we've got a long way to go. And then we can improve um, the quality of research on which we're making clinical decisions, uh, Louisa. It's not, you know, there's a lots of things to discuss, but I think we just start with the very basics. Um, you know, and also I think the other thing which I tell my medical students is that medicine is not an exact science. It's more of the practice of, it's an art, using probabilities from information, you know. And, and what you said earlier on is the other thing is that it constantly evolves. So, you know, David Sackett, who's considered one of the fathers of the evidence-based medicine movement, he says 50% of what you learn in medical school will turn out to be either outdated or dead wrong within five years of a graduation. The trouble is nobody can tell you which half. So you have to learn to learn on your own. Well, isn't that where that old saying of, practice and exercise good judgment comes in yes of course and you know and that triad of evidence-based medicine is it's using your individual clinical exper- uh, experience best available evidence and last but not least and this is crucial in fact probably most important is taking into consideration individual patients preferences and values and that involves having what we call a shared decision-making conversation where i will say to that patient by the way he's had a heart attack this is the absolute benefit you're going to get. Is this something you want to take? You know, what are the potential harms? What happens if I do nothing? What are the alternatives? This has to be routine, Louisa. It is not routine in medical practice. And it, this needs to change. And we have lots of different, you know, well-established bodies and organizations, um, certainly the UK, something called the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges, the BMJ have been pushing for, for a campaign called Choosing Wisely to encourage these conversations to go on in, in, in the consultation room. But it's still still at the concept stage where people who read it can't deny it's important and think it's extremely, this is, this is what we should be doing. But translating that into clinical practice needs a lot more. And what it probably needs, what's missing, is medical education. So it needs to be compulsory with the medical education that doctors have a, a basic understanding of, of, uh, of uh, health statistics and communicating risk to patients and benefits. And then it needs to be part of the examination. You know, doctors, you know that scientists and in your work, you know, we, we, um, we're much more likely to practice stuff if we have to learn it as, a, as part of our examinations. You know, what we want. And of course, postgraduate, ongoing postgraduate education needs to implement it as well. Until that happens, we're not going to really see that big change on the, uh, you know, at the coalface. But what we can do is keep talking about it and raise it through media, which is what I do. So more and more public become aware, more become empowered. And all of this together over time, you know, increases the likelihood of that shift happening. Yeah, look, in a perfect world, don't you think it would just be amazing if when a patient walked into their general practitioner's office that they would have a board of directors to answer their questions like a physician like I said earlier on in the episode a physician could give you a diagnosis based on the opinion and uh, advice from three or four other doctors and PhDs yeah sure and again it's about informed consent but but I think even a PhD and I'm not trying to undermine I think there's a lot of very great minds out there I think a lot of us and the way we practice medicine and what I maybe I'm slightly different is that I'm not a PhD I've not done uh, you know, basic science research myself. I've not got a, a PhD, but actually in a way that's an advantage for me because as you know, Louise, a lot of PhDs, a lot of work is a very niche particular topic within a broader, you know, uh, a broader area. And in fact, what happens, and I know this from my own, you know, I've been on many boards and I've been on committees where there are people who are, you know, PhDs in academics, is that they have a very specific expertise in a very narrow area. But it's, it's, you know, what we need to be thinking about is, or certainly what I think about is, 
how do we join all the dots so we can help the patient? And, uh, and I'm, again, I'm not undermining people, you know, the basic science here, but Richard Feynman, who's a very eminent physicist, one of the quotes is, you know, um, you know uh, knowledge and intelligence don't necessarily equate. You can have a PhD and still be an idiot. Uh, and, and, and I know, you know, I'm not naming anyone, but I know a lot of people who are, have PhDs are some of the most ignorant people I've ever met. Um, you know, it's about... Jo- but, but you could also say that about MDs as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's about joining the dots and it's not about undermining your profession or science. It's about joining the dots. It's about, you know, bringing it all together to think actually, ultimately, what are we trying to achieve here? And for me, my first duty is to my responsibilities to my individual patient and to scientific integrity. So, you know, how good is the scientific integrity of the information I'm using to make a decision with my patients? And then am I having a proper informed discussion with my patient? That's it. If we break it down to that, then it's, then everything makes sense. 100%. I absolutely love that. Now, we have we have gone off task a little bit. And in a moment, I'm going to summarize cholesterol. However, I want to get your view and your take on metformin. Because what I'm seeing now amongst the longevity experts in the world is people are now starting to take it as an anti-aging agent, you know, instead of being prescribed it for what it was originally made for? Yeah, so so I think there is, um, I haven't seen, I don't think there's any good data first and foremost that, uh, you know, improves lifespan. One thing in my own experience about metformin, it's a relatively safe drug, you know, it doesn't cause any harm. Some of the side effects usually are stomach upset. Um, it hasn't really been shown overall in terms of clinical data there was some conflicting results about improving lifespan reducing mortality etc but actually there's conflicting results there so it isn't there isn't any very strong hard evidence that metformin um is is definitely beneficial i can say it's a very safe drug and relatively harmless uh, but actually a lot of people take metformin to you know for for pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes it shouldn't detract from doing the lifestyle i think that raises another point as well is that some people certainly are led to believe that if they take this pill, let's just say Castatin again, let's talk about cholesterol-lowering pill. We have, we know there's actually good observational data showing that, and I see this in my practice, that people think that if they're taking a cholesterol-lowering pill and their cholesterol is low enough, they can eat what they like. And yet these people then come back with types of diabetes and obesity. And they think it's fine, I'm not going to get heart disease because I'm taking a cholesterol-lowering pill. When in fact, if you haven't got heart disease, it doesn't prolong your life and it doesn't reduce cardiovascular mortality. So there's a huge misinformation, health misinformation, prescribing misinformation mess going on and i think that again it comes into you know it's not let's just not look at individual pills let's look at the context of the whole patient and what else are they doing if they're taking this pill does that mean they're not thinking about their diet and if they're not thinking about their diet then they're probably going to end up with a net harm just by relying on the pill alone to lower their blood pressure or to help their type 2 diabetes for example now if the pill has some marginal benefit and they're doing the lifestyle changes that might be the ideal scenario now along with diet and taking care of yourself as a prevention method. You also talk a bit about genetics and how our genetics play out in terms of diet, lifestyle, health, and disease. In your book, you speak a lot about it. So how much of disease is determined by your DNA and genetic makeup? Yeah, so I think genetics play a role, Louisa, for sure. But in general, I think that, you know, probably genetics count for maybe about 20%. Um, and uh, the lifestyle has still has a very big component. I think certainly when it comes to metabolic syndrome, 
to what we know, and this is something that I don't know how well it was reported in Australia, but certainly in the US and the UK it was, is that there was this big, lot of news reports about the fact that people from, um, you know, black, uh, South Asian ethnic minority backgrounds were at increased risk of complications from COVID. And it seems to create a lot of confusion around it, but it, it's very well explained on, on a, a metabolic health level is that if you're from a South Asian background, for example, there is a genetic predisposition to one developing type 2 diabetes earlier. But actually, it's essentially that we, from and I'm from a South Asian background, um, are more likely to develop these diseases like type 2 diabetes and high blood pressure and heart disease at lower levels of body fat. So when you look at the, and I published a, a, um, an editorial in the International Journal Physician with two other um, South Asian eminent doctors, and uh, you know we, we said that actually poor metabolic health explains why you have bad outcomes in people from these backgrounds, because 43.6% of people of South Asian origin um, you know, with a normal BMI, Louisa, will have poor metabolic health. That's a huge proportion. And it's about 20% in Caucasian. So it's not completely absent in Caucasians. It's less, but it's still there. And that's why, you know, um, we're all vulnerable in that from that perspective. So there are some genetic uh, variations. Interestingly, there is some data suggesting that we also, South Asian origin, have um, genetically uh, lower, so we have lower muscle mass and likely lower cardiorespiratory fitness at genetic level. And there is a suggestion that we need to do more exercise to get the same cardiometabolic benefits. So, you know, the, the, the guidelines suggest 150 minutes of moderate activity per week, um, you know, for the, for the best health outcomes. You know, one paper did a, did a study looking at, you know, what level of activity for people from South Asian origins, uh, you know, in, in Europe uh, would uh, meet the same benefits at 150 minutes for people, for, you know, Caucasian backgrounds, for example. And it was 233. So not a small amount, quite significantly more. And I thought, bloody hell, you know, and I, and I read that and I'm, you know, I'm a, uh, you know, I, I'm a fitness fanatic, you know, more because you know, I used to be, a, you know, very active sportsman and captain sports teams at school, university and play cricket and all that kind of stuff. So I've been OCD about exercise for years, more because how it makes me feel, you know, more than anything else, not necessarily because of health, but of course, health is more of an issue now that I've got older. Um, and I, it's changed my, I read that paper and, and, and I have, um, you know, I am being much more rigorous in, in trying to get my 233 minutes on, on the exercise bike a week now um, after reading that, that data. As well as, of course, most importantly, sorting out, you know, making sure the diet's right, which was already, you know, pretty good for me because I've been reading this and following my own advice for years. Um, but yes, I mean, that's fascinating. And, and, and it's important because actual activity levels of South Asians and people from black backgrounds in, in certainly in the UK is less than, than the average Caucasian to start with. So if you combine that and, 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 and dietary practices, which are also pretty bad, with the genetics, Louisa, it's, it's a metabolic time bomb that uh, metabolic time bomb is quite scary. Um, let's take a turn now and talk about inflammatory cytokines and how they play a role in COVID-19 and in systemic diseases, because you touch on this in your book. And I think it'd be a really great introduction into the whole stress pathway. Yeah, so chronically high insulin, I think people need to see insulin also as a pro-inflammatory hormone, especially as if it's raised chronically over time, and there's good data supporting that. Um, but actually, the, the um, excess body fat itself can be seen as a, a substrate for chronic inflammation. So um, I think in very simple terms, I think people need to understand that 
you know, inflammation is your body's response. If you, any acute inflammation, for example, any injury, any infection, you know, this is necessary for survival that our body responds um, through uh, the immune system to try and, um, you know, um, capture a virus or, you know, uh, to stop a bleed through blood clotting, all that kind of stuff. That's acute and that's life-saving. And that responds to any acute uh, insult. Chronic inflammation basically is that there is an external stressor that results in the body's immune system at a very low level being chronically activated. And that ultimately over time will cause damage to various organs, various cells. And these are all then linked to these conditions and diseases, whether it's type 2 diabetes, heart disease, cancer, dementia, etc. And that seems to be obviously very much linked to excess body fat. So uh, what happens uh, when it comes to immunity, and this is what you know, seems to be the, the reason why um, people are adversely affected from COVID who have excess body fat, is if you've got this chronic inflammation going on, then the immune system itself is constantly working on that to, to deal with these external stresses related to poor diet, being sedentary, stress, poor sleep, etc. And therefore, your immune response is either suboptimal at the beginning when the virus hits you, or it then gets exaggerated um, through the release of these, you know, these proteins called cytokines from immune cells that then result in a very exaggerated immune response that causes damage to the lungs. For example, you have this cytokine storm um, for people with obesity or people certainly with coronavirus that get the worst outcomes that then causes se severe lung injury and death. So I think that's, a, that's probably the best way to explain it. A lot of it isn't very well understood, but certainly this is the data we have at the moment and the basic science suggests that, um, you know, the chronic and underlying chronic inflammation is not just a risk factor for many of these chronic diseases over time, but actually also results in a suboptimal immune system. Okay, so like we said earlier on in the episode, if we can manage our inflammatory response, we will then in turn manage and have better metabolic health. Yes, and I think that what's key is, again, that both poor diet and improved diet has an influence on these markers of chronic inflammation. So we've got, you know, the blood markers that are used are things like high-sensitivity CRP and what we call the pro-inflammatory cytokines. So that's uh, interleukin-1, interleukin-6, and something called tumor necrosis factor alpha. So these are the ones in studies that have been shown to be implicated in these disease processes but what's interesting, again, is, you know, and I write about this in the book, is there are studies showing that, if, for example, a fast food diet for, you know, eating fast food, you know, two or three times, uh, at least two or three times a week over several weeks will increase these markers in the blood. And even sugary drinks in 21 days, if you have one sugary drink a day, there's one study showing in healthy individuals, you start to increase these markers. Now, of course, that's different for it to translating an adverse outcome, but it does give you an idea that these sorts of foods, sugary drinks, ultra-processed foods are having effect on these inflammatory markers, even within a short space of time. And if you then cut them out of the diet, then of course these markers improve. So I think that's just at a very basic level to help people understand that actually, you know, um, and my, my colleague and friend in America, Professor Robert Lustig is a pediatrician and, and I call him the, the sugar guru, guru in the world. You know, um, he says that ultra processed foods really are a metabolic poison. And I think that's a, you know, we should start thinking about it that way in the same way we, you know, treat cigarettes really. Um, one cigarette won't kill you. You know, neither will one donut. <laughs> but over time, and certainly within a short period of time, they can start to damage your body. So I want to I want to know your take on at home genetic testing, such as 
23andMe to measure levels of cortisol. I've had my cortisol tested and I did the spit test. I know that there's a number of different different tests that you can do. I did a spit test over a, I think it was a 24-hour period, but I want to know your take on the validity. Are these, are these the genetic tests, Louisa, that tell you about risk of diseases, yes. et cetera? Yes. Yeah, so... It's a great concept, um, but from what the literature I've looked at, it doesn't seem to be very well validated. So, so I'm a little bit skeptical about it. And then the question is, what do you do with that information? Um, you know, so we need to really have more information and data that's showing that you know, if people took a test, what intervention did they? You know, and then, of course, it's over the long term. I, I don't think, as far as I'm aware, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, if these genetic tests are very well validated as in terms of their accuracy of predicting you know, whether you're going to get colon cancer or heart disease, et cetera. So the question is, if you've got such a huge margin of error, we're talking about evidence-based medicine to start with, then it's very difficult to then you know, measure any, any intervention. And the question then is, is are we... Oh, yeah. you know there's another aspect is that what are the you know whenever you think about a test or an investigation certainly medicine you don't just think about the potential benefits you think about the harms and of course you know over investigation over treatment also results in people getting extreme anxiety and that that, that is not good either so imagine for example you do a test and it tells you for you know you've got a 30 percent risk of colon cancer or something like that even if and, if and it's wrong let's just say it's wrong you know by a factor of 10 or whatever at least and then that person is very, very worried from then on that they're going to get colon cancer. They start to develop somatic symptoms and stomach complaints. They then start going for colonoscopies or getting CT scans done. It, it, it could potentially be an absolute disaster for that individual. So I know I'm taking one extreme example, but this is something that can very much happen. So I think that unless you've got a very good, accurate, validated test, and even then, even with a well-validated test, you don't do tests unnecessarily in people as a screening tool because of course you need to take lots of different considerations before you even organize a test because as I always say with my medical students as what I was taught in medical school in Edinburgh is you you know before you organize a test think about what you're going to do with the result and if you if it's not going to change your management then don't organize a test and what we're talking about here is something that is relatively safe which is basically prescribing people to change their lifestyles, not just to improve their physical health, but their mental health and quality of life too. So, you know, I think, I think it's all individual based, but I think we just need to think about that a bit, little bit more carefully. Yeah, look, we can go down the rabbit hole of genetic testing. Look, there's 22 to 30,000 genes and we can just keep testing absolutely everything and we can go in and end up being a human lab ourselves. I mean, like, it, no, seriously, even for me, I've got so much, uh, so much hooked up to me that you would think I've got my own human genome lab happening in my living room. But I guess that's um, that's in the name of science, right? Uh, but let's move on and let's go into obesity. You discuss obesity a lot, and I want to know why you chose as a cardiothoracic surgeon and as a cardiologist, why you've chosen to talk thoroughly on obesity at a time like this. 
Yeah, sure. No, I think, um, you know, it's it's a big public health issue of our time. And I, I mentioned and I write in the book that obesity is only the tip of the diet-related disease iceberg, which we've discussed. Um, but it's, uh, it's something we haven't really properly tackled, Louisa, because we can talk about the individual stuff that can help individuals. And of course, and then you've got the sustainability. So of course, 21 day plan is the start of your journey to show that you can significantly improve your health in a short space of time. But then the question is, what do you do afterwards? And, we, and I talk about that, but I think with the obesity epidemic in general, the reason we've not combated it is not about the education being wrong, although, of course, it has been misguided, you know, the whole low-fat food movement, all that kind of stuff, is about the fact that our food environment is saturated with ultra-processed foods so that it becomes unavoidable. Even hospitals, 75% of the food purchased in hospitals, Louisa, in the UK is ultra-processed and unhealthy. And then we ask ourselves, why are more than 50% of doctors and nurses overweight or obese as well? So it's clearly a food, food environment is the biggest driver of our behavior, and until we sort that out, like we did with tobacco, we're not going to really make any big uh, inroads into reversing these chronic disease epidemics in the population. Of course, individuals can be helped, but on a, on a grand... And even then, even those individuals, Louisa, that suddenly get helped, they're more likely to fall, you know, relapse or fall off the wagon if they're constantly battling with a food environment that is just saturated with all these junk foods. Yeah. In your book, I absolutely love how you make the distinction between immunity and fat. Could you please clarify the different types of fat? I know we have visceral fat. Yeah, visceral fat is basically the fat that you know develops around your intra-abdominal organs, specifically the liver and even the pancreas. And that seems to be the more harmful fat. So one of the markers, so we, in fact, we didn't even discuss that. Sorry, we should just briefly finish the other. So we've talked about blood glucose, triglycerides, HDL, but actually, the other two things that are, worth, that are important for metabolic health are your blood pressure. So you want it to be less than 120 systolic and less than 80 diastolic. And this is a bit which, you know, we're, we're talking about now, waist circumference. That is crucial. That is way more important than BMI. Everybody can measure this at home. And even if you can't get the other things measured, the very nice rule of thumb is that if your waist circumference at your belly button is more than half of your height, then you're probably at risk. So you want your waist circumference, in, you know, uh, to be less than um, half of your height. And if it's more than that, then that probably indicates that you've got excess body, uh, you know, ab intra-abdominal fat, and that's putting you at risk. And everybody can do that for free with just a simple tape measure. So that is the fat that's in the abdomen that seems to be the most risky. And when you look at the normal body mass index people that are high risk for metabolic syndrome, a lot of them will have, you know, just picture the, you know, the fat man with skinny legs kind of thing, the guy with the, the pot belly. That is the problem, you know, and of course, the sugar, the, the refined carbs, the excess alcohol, the stress, the poor sleep, all of these things feed into increasing this intra-abdominal fat. So once you, you know, address all of the, and of course, being sedentary, yes, I mean, moderate activity is key, let's not overdo it, but, um, but all of these things together, you know, will, will work synergistically to reduce that level of excess body fat in your abdomen. Yeah, I'm really happy that you touched on that because a lot of my research is now going into brown adipose tissue and and obviously the readers, uh, the listeners know this, I am starting to look into cold immersion and how cold shock proteins actually activate that brown adipose tissue. Now, I don't think we really need to go into that. What we've touched on in terms of visceral fat is very important. Now, lucky for me, I hold most of my fat from the waist down. You're lucky, Louisa, because actually having, um, it's a good point though, because uh, 
in fact, there is some good data showing that your thigh circumference, for example, the bigger your thigh circumference, certainly in terms of muscle mass, um, is protective. Can, and even with the fat around there as well, especially for women. Can I get that printed out and slapped <laughs> on my Instagram feed, please? No, I I want everybody to be aware of that, especially I wish I knew that going through school. Oh. So um, thank you for putting that out there. Now, I we're wrapping up the episode very shortly, but there are two things that we haven't touched on that I'd like to touch on very quickly. And the first one is intermittent fasting. Now, a lot of people know about this. It gets a lot of attention. I want to know what are the beneficial effects of intermittent fasting. And also let's go into the ketogenic diet. It's one that I pose and deem the best for brain health, but I'd really love a cardiologist perspective. Yeah, really good question. I think uh, let's start with, you know, get let's start with getting rid of the ultra processed foods first. So I think, you know, there are different preferences, different cultures, people who are vegetarian, people who are meat eaters. I think the crucial thing is to avoid the ultra processed food because that is certainly the data is emerging showing it's pro-inflammatory, you're going to consume more, it's going to lead to excess body fat, all that kind of stuff. And that really from the obesity perspective, uh, Louisa, is the major issue because if you go back, you know, 40 or 50 years and you look at old videos and pictures and, you know, people on beaches and stuff like that, there was almost, you can, can't see anyone who's overweight. It's very, very rare, right? And the, 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 what's changed is the food environment. We're consuming a lot of these foods. So I think the first thing is, let's get rid of that. You then move into um, what data do we have? And of course, you know, nutritional science is, is um, you know, we've talked about the, the medical science being, a lot of it being unreliable. Nutritional science is even less reliable in terms of the data and how reliable it is to then draw conclusions from them. So the best we've got is, you know, what do we, what data do we have? And then how does it translate to studies we have with patients and our own experience? And that's the best we can do. And that's what I do. Certainly, um, until this is refuted, the, you know, the only two randomized controlled trials I'm aware of where they've shown hard outcome benefit as in reducing heart attack, stroke, death, for example, are studies based upon using the traditional Mediterranean diet. And from the traditional Mediterranean diet, the specific foods where there is data showing that they're anti-inflammatory, they combat insulin resistance, they're good for your cholesterol profile, et cetera, are things like you know, um, lots of uh, vegetables, um, you know, low sugar fruits, extra virgin olive oil, um, a handful of nuts every day, oily fish, omega-3. So I think those are probably the, the secrets are probably going to be in those foods. Um, so I think, think about that. Think about, are you getting all your nutritional requirements from what you're eating? Uh, one of the downsides of being vegan is that almost everybody needs to take B12 supplements. So this is not a diet we were evolved to eat. Um, and I know people do it for really ethical reasons, but you know it's it, it's it's more challenging to get all your nutrition, and it is also more challenging, certainly when it comes to protein requirements, um, to get you know the, the, all your essential amino acids from being vegan. I'm sure somebody out there listening may contradict me and say that they can get it from some protein protein. But I'm talking from real food here. I'm not talking about protein powders that are manufactured. I'm talking about real whole foods so i think that we need to think about that my mum was vegetarian and it, and it damaged her significantly because a lot of her vegetarian base was you know anything that is animal product free is essentially vegetarian or vegan isn't it um but that means it can be loads of junk that people are eating and, and there's a whole huge market out there ultra processed food that's pushing this stuff that people think just by the fact that it's vegan it must be healthy often there's those vegan products are the complete opposite for your health so i think that's the challenge we've got to think about um, and people need to be some more empowered and more aware of 
Um, but uh, yeah, I think I think it's one that really is 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 um, you know has plenty of uh, a variety of foods, high quality carbohydrates from you know whole fruit and vegetables, um, pulses, seeds, nuts. You know, just a variety of those sorts of foods based upon the, the and the one that's going to reduce your risk of getting. Uh, inflammatory conditions and insulin resistance, and I think that that those are the, those are the key points really when it comes to what the, what the ideal diet is, uh, Louisa. But I think again, until we've got more better randomized controlled diet trial data on outcome benefit, certainly up to now, the best combination of observational data with these randomized controlled trials are those components of the Mediterranean traditional Mediterranean diet. Yeah, I really agree with you. And something else that I agree on and love is the chapter in your book that's dedicated to supplementation. You ask the question, do I need to take supplements? That's always a a subject that a lot of us are like, should I, shouldn't I? Now, my listeners know that I'm very big on nootropics. Uh, also known as smart drugs, anything that is going to enhance cognitive performance. Everything that I talk about is very scientifically backed by research upon research. I never put out or advocate for anything that doesn't have some sort of neurological benefit. And so I love that you've put in supplementation in here. I also am a huge fan like you are of fish oil, EPA, DHA, but something that you've put in your book that I think everyone should be well aware of is a very famous quote. And that is food is medicine. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's time that we start promoting food as a part of healthcare. You know, that's what we need to be doing now. And uh, it needs to, we just need to keep, keep repeating it. Food is part of your intervention. It's part of healthcare. This is what we should be discussing with patients um you know and if we fix food we'll fix the healthcare crisis and don't forget sleep if we fix our sleep we will help the healthcare crisis yeah, it's, all, it's all interrelated isn't it as well i agree no absolutely it's something again we've neglected we live a very fast-paced life we've got you know the addition now of, of social media and i think it brings a lot of positives but i think the negatives is you can overload on it um, and it can cause a lot of, and, and I think trolling, you know, I think trolling is pretty bad for mental health. I mean, I think that, you know, with the Instagram culture, Louisa, as well, one of the things that concerns me is that, you know, people are posting a lot of stuff of, uh, of them, which isn't necessarily um, reflective of who they are. You know, they're trying to get the best picture. They're trying to do filters. They're trying to do all this stuff. So everyone's competing with you for the next best picture and looking at the number of likes. And, you know, I'll, I'll just, you know, it reminds me actually of uh, one of my, again, Professor Robert Lustig, who's a good friend of mine, wrote this book, great book, which I think you should definitely read, called The Hacking of the American Mind. And he talks about how we've confused pleasure and happiness. And he you know, uses a lot of neuroscience as well uh, in, in that because he, he studied neuroscience in uh, a university, if I remember correctly. He did a degree related to neuroscience. And he talks about how we've, you know, we've, we've mixed pleasure and happiness. And we've got pleasure, which is almost a hedonistic instant gratification kind of hit with a lot of things we do. And happiness is a true, sustained, you know, feeling a sense of well-being, which is related to serotonin. Dopamine is the pleasure-hitting hormone. Serotonin is the real, true happiness hormone. And if you overdo that dopamine, you downregulate the serotonin. So if you're overdoing all the stuff, whether it's, you know, in anything, any addiction, whether it's drugs or, you know, junk food or whatever. But what he said to me was one of the first, I'll never forget this, when he'd written the book before we actually, before it was published, 
and he, t- he was giving me a list of the things that, you know, the biggest causes of unhappiness. And, you know, and I'm going to get, he said, Asim, tell me, what do you think one of the biggest causes of unhappiness in the world today is? And I said, what, Rob? And he goes, and I'm going to, sorry, I'm gonna, please excuse me for my American accent. He says, the Facebook like button. And it's about, you know, we, we post something, we get anxious about, and we look back and we go obsessively, how many people have liked this post, how many people have seen it, all that kind of stuff. And it does create this sort of low, it does create this level of anxiety. And even if we do, we get a great post that's done really well, we're then competing ourselves with the next post. And if our next post doesn't do as well as the last one, we think, why? You know, we get anxious about it and upset. And then you've got trolling. So I'm trolling when I'm, I mean, I see it less on Instagram, but certainly on Twitter, I'm on Twitter quite a lot, is basically yeah. people who are just throwing negative, you know, comments and dirt and, and become abusive. And I know this, a lot of my friends, I won't name some of them, are, you know, are big figures, public figures, celebrities, broadcasters, and they message me and they get very, and they're, you know, people doing great work with huge following and they get very upset with one or two comments that are thrown at them that are really nasty and it really affects them mentally. And um, I think we need to think, I think, I think this is all going to change. I don't think social media is going to remain as it is over the next few years. I think a lot of this stuff is going to have to change because I think it is adversely affecting a lot of people's mental health. And, you know, I look forward to having a, um, I don't know what it is, a social media holiday or something like that. Is that, you know, the people need to just try it, you know, um, you know, maybe, maybe they need to listen to this podcast first. Right. But, <laughs> you know, going off social media for a couple of weeks completely and just see how you feel mentally. You might feel a big difference. You might sleep better just because of that. Well, you know, in Australia, you can't see likes. So when I landed here in late April, I was putting up posts and I realized nobody can see likes. That's interesting. On on Instagram. Yeah. On Instagram, you can't see likes. Oh, that's good. That's great. But let me tell you something that I've learned. And this is for myself. I used to be somewhat critical of myself, you know, when I would post things on Instagram because of, uh, I mean, I'm not sure. I, maybe it was because I judged myself not as good as whether it was my colleagues or, you know, thinking what is the general public going to think about me? And I used to think that it wasn't until I gained the confidence. I always say that confidence is like certainty on steroids. I became so, so educated in my field. So I gained the confidence when I know that I can have conversations and uphold conversations with the best physicians such as yourself in the world, which I do on the podcast. When I know that I can be on the same length as the best PhDs, in the world, the best neuroscientists, that's when I know that I have the confidence to do anything. And right now that's where that the level I'm at when it comes to confidence of putting out social media posts hoot, is a uh, <laughs> probably 10x the, than what it was last year. Um, but I worked on myself. I worked on the things that I was afraid of. I worked on the things that were dimming my confidence. I did the work and now I can sit proudly and post whatever I want because it's coming from a place of knowledge, a place from heart and what I want to be putting out there into the world. Absolutely. And I think, you know, that, again, it's a lot of waste of time and energy to be doing, you know, getting into battles with people. I don't think it achieves anything and you're getting more upset. You know, there's a George Bernard Shaw, the famous British writer, I think he's sorry, British or Canadian. I apologize if he, was, if he wasn't British. You know, he says that never, you know, never wrestle with a pig. You both get dirty and the, and the pig likes it. 
Um, you know, so I, I, I've kind of always think about that when it comes to responding to people who are trolling, for example, and I just block them. Um, but on the positive side, uh, Louisa, I think the other thing is that we need to, is I've learned, I learned a lot, you know, I get a lot of information, a lot of medical information, new research through social media as well. And of course we connected through social media. So I think that, um, you know, there's a lot of people I've connected with and a lot of people I've, um, you know, formed great relationships with who are on this movement to better health, better information, better transparency has happened through social media. So I, we can't ignore that. I think we just need to, we haven't figured out yet. I think the, 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 the amount of the dose of social media that each of us, um, probably, you know, should be a limit for us from a daily basis. I get these updates. I don't know if you do on my phone. And of course, some of it's mixed in with WhatsApp, for example. And I, I, it shocks me still. I'm still trying to work out what do I do to reduce it. But, you know, last week or whatever, you know, you average six and a half hours a day or whatever on you. I'm like, bloody hell, that is way too much, isn't it? Like six and a half hours a day looking at your phone. I mean, you know, so, so you know, I think, I, we, yeah, we, I, maybe we need to just try and do something or the technology will evolve or whatever. But of course, it's in the interest of things like Instagram and Facebook, you know, their whole model is based upon keeping engagement there. You know, one of my, um, a patient I saw, what name quite seen in Facebook, and he came to me and he said, a scene, you know, I'm completely with you on all of this. We think it's actually, we know it's having a negative impact on mental health, what a lot of Facebook are doing. But a whole model is, is geared towards increasing engagement. You know, so the huge conflict there so i think this will evolve with time and hopefully we'll reach a you know uh, a better place with it uh, you know at some point well why don't you tell the audience where we can grab a copy of the 21 day immunity plan obviously we are pre-recording this episode and i'd like to know where people globally can get their hands on a copy of your book so um, we're pre-recording this uh, today on the august the 27th um thursday and it's immediately available it's out everywhere in the UK, in Australia, in India, in America. In America, it's just available as an audio and ebook for now, but I think that's quite popular in the States. Um, but yes, and it's, uh, um, it's you know, I, I promise you, you'll find it a very interesting read. Hopefully, it'll empower you with lots of new information that you weren't aware of. Certainly, I even talk about the limitations of modern medicine in there as well, if that's something people are interested in. And um, uh, and it's not a long read, Louisa. You know, the, the publisher, we decided wanted to do something that would empower people but wouldn't it you can get through it in a couple of hours and uh in fact one of the quotes and endorsees of the book is the um is james mookie who is the australian of the year 2020 and i was really honored that he gave a huge amazing endorsement of the book and he said you know this is you know one of his conclusions and the endorsement said that this is you know uh, all that you can read this all in two hours so two hours of your time to read a book that may change your life and hopefully help your friends and family um, you know, uh, I, I uh, go for it, you know, and, 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 and post your reviews and give me feedback. Absolutely. Well, look, we're going to be linking absolutely everything in the show notes, all the handles, uh, to your social media in the show notes and below this episode. But Dr. Sim, thank you so much for being part of the Neuro Experience podcast. Thank you, Louise. It's been an absolute pleasure.